title, Lois and Clark debuted on the BBC under the more descriptive and more obvious moniker of The New Adventures of Superman on January 8th, 1994 at 7pm, with an extended 75-minute pilot episode. An instant rating smashed the decision to initially only air 11 episodes and save the remainder for the autumn, was shelved, and all 22 first-season shows were screened in one block, and, unusual for the BBC, in the correct order. In contrast to our American cousins, who had to endure constant time slot changes in its final year, Lois and Clark continued to err in the same time slot for the remainder of its run, and it stayed a top-rated show for anti-Beeb. You can always tell when an imported show is popular for the BBC. They repeat it a lot, and such it was with Lois and Clark, which was repeated on both BBC One and BBC Two, becoming a staple of the daytime holiday schedules and on the BBC Two youth slot, where it erred until 2005. Here's Lois and Clark's theme. show that, when watched in hindsight, can be seen to have lost its way fairly quickly. The first season is still the best, juggling the moonlighting-style antics of Lois and Clark with the superhero stuff far more successfully than in later years, albeit in a much tamer fashion than moonlighting. One thing that cannot be underestimated, and indeed contributed massively to the show's success, is the series' stars. Terry Hatcher was a jobbing actress, best known for her appearances on MacGyver and Seinfeld, who brought a vulnerability to Lois that was seldom seen on the screen. The writers frequently dropped the ball on exactly how Lois should be played. I'll be honest, I prefer my Lois to be a lot more no-nonsense like Phyllis Coates, but Hatcher always made Lois relatable and endearing. Dean Cain, who played Clark Kent, was an unknown. He'd done a few guest spots on Beverly Hills 90210, but Lois and Clark was his big break. And, to the man's credit, he's always seemed grateful to the series in subsequent years. He's a different kind of Clark to previous live-action versions, largely because, as with Clark in the 1950s, he's the character that has to carry the show. Kane's Clark is a typical 90s new man. He wears sharp suits and natty ties. He has more product in his hair than Lois and Cat Grant combined, and he convinces nobody that he's mild-mannered and unassuming. Hatcher once joked that it was symptomatic of 90s television that the men were prettier than the women. Whilst the first series had an arc of sorts and focused on Lois Clark and the machinations of the evil Lex Luthor, played here as suave and with a full head of her by John Shea, season two took a different direction and focused more on the superheroics. The villains started getting more outlandish and comic booky, and the writers found it a challenge to work on the show given its incredible demographics. 
Everybody likes Lois and Clark, from very small children to pensioners. As such, the series went to the camp well a little more often than it should, but when it managed to juggle its elements successfully, it prospered. One such villain, and one of the few created specifically for the show, was Tempest, played by Lane Davis. First appearing in Tempest Fugitive from the second season, Davis's snarky takedown of everything Superman stands for and looks like plays like the arguments of every butthurt comics reader who prefers Wolverine's kill em all one-note approach to characterization in contrast to Superman's more nuanced approach. Thanks to Davis, Tempest manages to be both likeable and slimy in equal measure. Written by Jack Weinstein and Lee Hudson, Tempest Fugitive, a clever play on the original Latin, is a script that demonstrates that you don't have to be in any way original for a television episode story to be entertaining. In this episode, H.G. Wells arrives in the 1990s looking for Superman, and he approaches Clark and Lois at the Daily Planet, a building you can apparently just walk into. He has a partner from the future, Tempest, and they're just gallivanting around to see how the legend of Superman came to be. Tempest, a nefarious criminal who hates the utopian future created by Superman and his descendants, decides to go back to Smallville in 1966 and kill baby Kal-El before he can grow up. Lois and Clark must stop him. Taking elements from Time After Time, The Terminator and Back to the Future and adding absolutely nothing new, Tempest Fugitive should not work. It's as derivative as hell, with scenes and plot developments ripped off from the movies I just mentioned. Plus, the time travel makes very little sense. Add to that a Superman who goes from being completely disbelieving of time travel to being able to build a time machine in a matter of screen minutes. And this should be a complete mess. However, TV shows have a significant advantage over film in that, with characters we like and care about. A TV show can have a plot that is predictable and obvious, but have the characters and situations save the day for us. Such is the case here. Terry Hatcher and Lane Davis essentially carry this episode with contrasting performances. Hatcher, for her part, never lets Lois fall into caricature when she discovers that Tempest is a time traveller, and the scene where they ask if she is galactically stupid is one of the highlights of the series. It works especially well in playing into Lois's hurt and anger about Clark. Davis, however, can go big, and he does so at every available opportunity. Whether it's learning to be a mugger, ripping off a gun shop in a scene straight out of the Terminator, or delivering acidic quips, Davis is a wonderfully snarky and smarmy villain throughout. His desire to rid the world of Utopia simply because it's boring is as good a motivation for villainy as one gets, and Davis gets all the best lines. Still, every campy bad guy needs a straight man, and Terry Kaiser's a pretty good one as H.G. Wells. Kaiser acquits himself admirably with the British accent, and manages to play the comedy just right, never stepping over into parody. He's earnest and sincere when he needs to be, and that's why the character works. Dean Kane is his affable self, and he seems where he tries to explain to Lois why he adopted a costume persona are heartfelt and well played. Kane never seems to be mentioned on the list of great Superman actors, but a lot of this show is carried on the back of his charismatic personality, and his Clark Kent was as valid an interpretation as anyone else's. The episode has a number of standout scenes, with Kay Callan and Eddie Jones featuring in most of them. Callan and Jones play younger versions of Martha and Jonathan Kent in 1966, and then they play relatives of Martha and Jonathan in, in 1866. Callan looks a lot younger in the 60s scenes, although Jones looks a tad silly with dyed eyebrows, but they provide background in a great scene in 1866. See, to give Superman and Lois time to find them, H.G. Wells alters the time machine chronology so that they 
overshoot where they should go and end up in 1866 instead of 1966. We are then treated to a scene where Tempest outshoots Jesse James, although Jesse's extended penis metaphor afterwards is stretching it a tad. Also magnificent is Lois and Clark meeting Jonathan and Martha in the 60s. Clark's post-discovery conversation with Lois and Lois kicking Tempest's arse at the conclusion. In fact, the only bum note is the ending where Wells says, oh, the time travel thing is no problem. I'll simply drop Lois and Clark back in the future before I met you. You'll remember none of this. I'm sorry, but that makes absolutely no sense. But it also robs us of a great ending. It's disappointing that Lois doesn't remember anything, as this could have been the turning point for the show. Alas, the producers elect not to take the road less travelled, and the show enters back into its regular status quo by the end of the show. Here is the best-remembered scene. Oh, sorry, Miss Lane. I, I wish I'd never invented this contraption. Keep loading the gold. If you want to kill Superman, I don't know why you're going to Smallville or why 1966. She doesn't know yet. Oh, this is good. This is really good. Um, Lois, did you know that in the future you're revered at the same level as Superman? Are there books about you, statues, an interactive game? You're even a breakfast cereal. Really? Yes. But as much as everybody loves you, there is one question that keeps coming up. How... Dumb was she? Here, I'll show you what I mean. Ed, uh... Look. I'm Clark Kent. No, I'm Superman. Mild-mannered reporter. Superhero. was worth the whole trip to actually meet the most galactically stupid woman who ever lived. <laughs> Come on, Herb. Clark and Superman are dead. The future belongs to me. Tempest Fugitive is one of the better episodes of Lois and Clark. It's a lot more light and fluffy than superhero material on television today, with Tempest being all bluster and no britches when it actually comes to killing people. What the script lacks in originality, it makes up for in characterisation. The acting is all pretty solid, although the aforementioned Jesse and Frank James scene feels like padding in an otherwise well-paced show. It's fondly remembered as one of the better episodes of the series, not only for its skewering of the anti-Superman fanboys, but also for being an examination of who Superman is and what he represents. It also features, in one line, the big difference between this version of Superman and all the others. When Lois scolds Clark for lying to her, Clark replies that he doesn't lie. Clark is who he really is. Superman is what he can do. Tempest was incredibly popular and was voted by fans of the show as the overall best villain. Yes, even over Lex Luthor. As such, it was a no-brainer that the character would return, and he did. Kind of. In the second season finale, and the answer is... In this show, Tempest's diary falls into the hands of Jason Mazik, purely by chance, and in it, Tempest wrote down loads of future stuff from his cell in 1866, including that Clark is Superman. Mazik then proceeds to blackmail Clark into doing his bidding, else he will reveal his secret. To be fair, including this in a Tempest rundown is kind of a cheat. 
It doesn't actually feature Tempest, apart from in flashbacks to Tempest Fugitive, which Superman doesn't even remember, and as such is a footnote in the overall Tempest story arc. It's also contradicted by later Tempest episodes, in which we learn that he escaped from the cell he was left in in 1866, details he presumably left out of the diary, as Superman doesn't seem to be aware of them in upcoming episodes. This episode also includes the return of Tony Jay as Nigel, who, in previous shows, was Lex Luthor's right-hand man. And at times, the dialogue seems like it was written for Lex. I do wonder, therefore, if this was an episode penned for John Shea, and his appearance ultimately fell through. Ultimately, and the answer is, is more about Clark and Lois than the villain plot. Clark is about to tell her he is Superman at the beginning of the show and is rehearsing what he's going to say, but for some unexplained reason this morphs into him asking her to marry him instead, which seems to come out of nowhere just to give the season a cliffhanger ending. It's not a bad episode. There is one really funny scene where Jemmy and Perry both acknowledge that they seem to be minor supporting players in Lois and Clark's life and are a bit tired of it. But it's not a Tempest episode per se, even though it is he that drives the plot. Tempest himself would return a season later in an episode entitled Tempest Anyone, and there's no explanation given at all for how he's ended up escaping in 1866, and the plot flatly contradicts, and the answer is. That episode implied Tempest died in prison in the 1900s, but here Tempest has managed to escape his incarceration and built a new time machine. Likewise, with no explanation, his time machine can now cross dimensions as well as time. In this episode, written by John McNamara, Tempest robs banks in our dimension and is a respected senator in the other dimension, a dimension where Jonathan and Martha were killed when Clark was ten, and as such, he never became Superman. Clark still performs good deeds, but he does so in secret, and nowhere near at the level that he does in our dimension. H.G. Wells shows back up, played now as an elderly gentleman by Hamilton Camp, and takes Lois to the other dimension where she is dead. After all, if there wasn't a Superman, we'd have to create him. Again, this episode is not as good as Tempest Fugitive on any level. Hamilton Camp is a lot shorter than Terry Kaiser, which you think Lois would have pointed out, and his performance, well, it's fine, isn't as good. The episode is also quite lethargically paced, with pauses between lines and scenes lasting longer than perhaps they should. The plot also makes no sense. Why would Tempest rob banks in a world where there is a Superman? And if he was intent on doing so, why do it in Metropolis? How does Tempest, and by extension H.G. Wells' time machine, now cross to alternative dimensions? It's implied that Tempest killed Jonathan and Martha and Lois before they could influence Clark. Why not just get rid of Clark in some way? Granted, if he does that, he can't have Lois create Superman so as to discredit his political opponent, Perry White. But this itself makes no sense. It's a very convoluted plot to discredit your political opponent when it involves alternative dimensions and manipulation, when he could simply use his time machine to get anything he wants. His introduction, though, is funny and harkens back to his first appearance, which, of course, Lois has no memory of. Here it is. Hi, Lois. Remember me? No. How about now? (laughs) <laughs> Private joke. Lois, after all we meant to each other, I'm still not ringing any bells. Tempest anyone still has a lot to recommend it. Jimmy Olsen, being owner of the Daily Planet and supporting Perry's run for Murr, is a lot of fun, as is Dean Cain's performance as a clerk that has all these powers, yet is directionless in how to use them. 
This is the first and only appearance of Lana Lang on Lois and Clark, and she's quite faithful to the Superboy comics, here playing Clark's fiancée, and Emily Proctor is fine in the role, although I would have preferred her as a redhead. The scenes where Lois instructs Clark on how to be Superman are great, and the making of his costume is also a lot of fun, as Clark slowly comes around to the idea of being a larger-than-life symbol and an inspiration to people, even if he still thinks glasses are a pretty terrible disguise. There's a great moment where he saves a cop from being killed, and when asked his name, rather sheepishly replies, Superman. The cop, rather than looking askant, says, Superman. That's pretty cool. There's also a lot of gags at the expense of President Heston, in that everybody walks around packing heat. There's a neat exploration of Superman and what he means to the world, and Lois's importance to the Superman legend. As with the first Tempest episode, this is Lois's story, and Hatcher again does a good job with it. There's also a nice montage to the clique's I Am Superman that is pleasant enough. Lane Davis seems to be enjoying himself again, and has a number of lines that break the fourth wall in entertaining fashion, my favourite being his line about commercial breaks, and it's these moments that make the episode enjoyable rather than the plot. The budget strings are showing by this point, however. The set dressers make no attempt to make the alleyway in which Lois is kidnapped by Tempest look like anything other than what it is, a backlot alleyway. And there's a scene where Superman's costume isn't supposed to have the S emblem on it, so they shoot him over Lois's shoulder rather than remove an S off a suit. They must have had a suit without the S, as Kane wore one in the pilot. Special effects are also very limited. Flying effects are reduced to Kane just waving his cape in front of the camera, and the other actors then look in the air as if he's taken off, and landings are depicted exactly as they were in the 1950s, with Kane leaping in from an off-camera box. Largely, the episode coasts along on the strength of its actors. It's also very cheap-looking, an entertaining enough instalment, if nowhere near as good as the first one. Of course, Tempest escapes at the end, and as you can't keep a good bad guy down, he returned in Season 4. Here is the clique's version of I Am Superman as featured in this episode. It's not as fast as the R.E.M. version, which is more popular and more well-known, although it is the original. Personally, I prefer the R.E.M. version because it speeds it up a little bit, but have a listen. I think it's a nice enough little slice of 60s jingly-jangly guitar pop. All apologies to Michael Bailey, who doesn't actually like this very much, but you can fast-forward for two minutes.
schoolmate sees our intrepid reporters, now married, about to consummate their love when H.G. Wells shows up, played by Terry Kaiser again. He tells Lois and Clark should they perform the deed, Lois will die of one hell of an STD. He reveals that their souls are intrinsically linked throughout time, and at some point in the past a curse was placed upon them, so that should any of their soul errs become a couple, one of them will die. Herb has invented a device that will allow their souls to travel to past hosts to put right what once went wrong. Yes, Lois and Clark does Quantum Leap, complete with Dean Kane even saying... Oh boy, although he's not quite as good at it as Scott Bakula. Soulmates is a campy romp that allows our heroes to play at being Robin Hood and then Cowboys as they bounce through time and try to stop the curse from ever being. In each incarnation they find Lois's sole relative betrothed to Tempest and in each case Clark must find a way to prevent their union. If this makes very little sense, it's largely because Clark's soul shouldn't even be on Earth and that this script was originally written for Lex Luthor. Sadly, John Shea proved to be unavailable, and so the script was rewritten at the literal last minute to accommodate Tempest, and as such, it doesn't really work. Tempest never loved Lois. In fact, he barely tolerated her, and the rewrites mean he has little to nothing to do with H.G. Wells, which was where some of the best bits of Tempest Fugitive came from. Terry Kaiser and Lane Davis are a lot of fun when they interact together. Unfortunately, they don't get the chance in this episode. Still, there are a number of good gags. There's even one at the expense of this last-minute rewrite, with Lois pointing out that this would have made a lot more sense if it were Lex, but ultimately this is all rather dopey. Clark has no powers in his past life, so Superman barely makes an appearance, and it isn't as much fun as you would think it would be seeing Lois and Clark play at Cowboys, especially as the budget doesn't seem to stretch to anything spectacular in the action department. Lois looks rather fetching in her leather cowboy corset and her black negligee at the end, but this is ultimately a rather forgettable Tempest instalment. I was presently surprised to see that Meet John Doe, the next appearance of our time-travelling, dimension-hopping snark master, was written by Tim Minear. Minear worked on some of my favourite shows of the last decade or so, including Angel and Firefly, where he wrote one of my all-time favourite hours of television, so this was a treat. In terms of its script, this, the first of a two-part show, is very well constructed with its repeated scenes of Lois being snatched away from Superman, providing a nice recurring visual, and then being turned on its head in the finale where we see it's actually Superman being snatched away. In this episode, Tempest escapes from an asylum for the criminally insane, and using a subliminal device convinces the US to vote him president. He turns the country against Superman and ultimately traps our hero in an interdimensional limbo. Not as campy as some of the other episodes mentioned here, Tempest actually feels like a credible and legitimate threat in this show. Minear darkens the character considerably, and his evil plot this time is thoroughly believable and manipulative for being all behind the scenes. Yet crucially, Minear still has Tempest retain his sense of humour, and Lane Davis does a great job in stepping up and imbuing Tempest with malicious intent to great effect. The best scene to demonstrate this is where Tempest casually explains his plot to a security guard with the line, Is that enough exposition for you, or should I continue? Before ordering the man to jump to his death. Davis plays the comedy for great humour, but turns deliciously evil within a line of dialogue, providing the audience with a far deeper version of Tempest than previously. Kane and Hatcher are as good as ever, with Lois now a full partner, and not being treated as, as, as flighty or as scatty as she was in the early episodes. Effect is still limited, but it doesn't look as cheap as Tempers anyone, with a nice, albeit limited, scene where Superman stops Lois's car from falling off a cliff. Humour and drama are nicely balanced in other aspects as well, with some of it being darker than usual for this show. 
Lois is writing her will, much to Clark's consternation. She feels that as she's been shot at and electrocuted just this year alone, she probably needs one. There's also a genuinely funny scene where Tempest turns Superman into the paper pushers with requests for flying permits and his social security number, and the police admonish him for not reading criminals their Miranda rights. The casting of Fred Willard as the president is also perfect, as Willard, with his bland good looks and plastic hair, looks like every anodyne American politician I've ever seen. Tempest easily beats him in the polls, and at episode's end, he's won. Superman is carted off to another dimension, and Tempest is president. How's our Man of Steel going to get out of this one? The answer is provided in the next episode, Lois and Clark's, which isn't written by mine ear and therefore isn't as good. It's all wrapped up too easily and there's very little action or excitement, which is a shame, as there are some excellent ideas in this script, but none are developed or explored. H.G. Wells, sensing a disturbance in the Force, journeys to now, with the Clark from the parallel universe as seen in Tempest anyway. With this other Clark performing Superman's good deeds in defiance of Tempest, Wells attempts to seek out our Superman, but is thwarted by Tempest, who has decided to destroy this world and rule the parallel universe instead. It's up to other Superman to stop him, and try not to fall in love with another Clark's Lois. As stated, the idea of bringing in the other Clark from the previous episode is a good one, but nothing's done with it. There's a couple of mushy scenes where he moons over Lois, but there's never any idea that he'll really betray our Superman, so it's a lot of soap opera melodrama. More could have been milked from this situation if perhaps Tempest had promised other Superman, Lois, if he'd helped him rule the world. There could have been some real drama mind there, as other Superman wrestles with his conscience about whether to betray our Superman. This would have also freed our Superman up to actually do something. He spends the entire episode trapped in Microsoft Photo Paint version 1.0 doing bugger all. Likewise, Tempest isn't nearly as menacing or as funny as he was in the last episode. He provides one really good laugh with the line, What do you think this is? A family television show? But other than that, he just putters around doing very little of interest. Hamilton Camp returns as H.G. Wells, and again is just used to solve the plot problems instead of being a viable character. And it's even implied at the end that he can find other Lois, despite the fact that we saw her grave in Tempest anyone. There was a nice scene where other Clark meets Jonathan and Martha, which was well played, but this was a very cheap and shoddily produced climax to the story. The budget restrictions mean the writers can't really explore the ideas properly and the action is non-existent, and what there is is a tad dumb. Superman apparently believes that the countdown to nuclear Armageddon can be stopped by punching a computer. The ending is clever, though. Tempest, having been brought to justice, reveals that Superman is Clark. But wouldn't you know it, we have two Supermans now, and his revelation is quickly undercut by the two of them being seen together on camera. A line about how similar they look would have been funny, but this was a cute little moment that was straight out of the comics. Sadly, Lois and Clark squander some good ideas with botched execution and a clear lack of money, and as with the series itself, seems like a show that is running on vapours. These episodes cover the whole spectrum of Lois and Clark, from frothy romantic comedy to superhero soap opera, to high camp heroics to drama and back again, and this is the problem. Lois and Clark was too schizophrenic a series when looked at as a whole. Yes, it was a show with a huge demographic, but it also meant that the show tried to be too many different things to too many different people, and never actually settled down and looked at what it really wanted to be. Sometimes it's too mushy for me, and I would have liked more Superman, but at the same time, this brought in a massive female audience that tuned in specifically for the Lois and Clark relationship, and they drove the fan base in many ways. 
The actors are the show's saving grace. Lois is occasionally badly written, but Hatchie gives her all, even in badly written episodes, and she never gives up and slums. Rather, she imbues Lois with a nobility that the scripts often lack. Dean Cain was an adequate Superman, but a really good Clark Kent, and his inexperience really shows. He even took an interest in the production side of things, writing a number of well-received episodes. The supporting cast are all good in their respective roles, even if they are often woefully underused, although Lane Smith was a very impressive Perry White. Mostly Lois and Clark seems to be a footnote in the Superman legend, popular far more with women than with comics fans, who seem quite dismissive overall. Smallville would come along but a few short years after Lois and Clark was cancelled, and would give audiences a new take on the legend, barely letting Lois and Clark have some time to itself in syndication to solidify its status, as the George Reeves series was allowed to do. Both Kane and Hatcher appeared in Smallville. Kane as Curtis Knox, CK, get it? And Hatcher followed the Superman tradition of being a previous Lois Lane, portraying the mother of the newest Lois, appearing as Erica Durant's mum. We now need to find a way to bring Durant into the Man of Steel films and have her somehow have her play Amy Adams' mum. Timey-wimey. Ultimately, Lois and Clark was hampered by its own premise. It was the romantic comedy version of the Superman legend, developed by a woman who had no interest in doing the Superman show, yet ironically her season was the best overall. The second season developed more along the lines of the comics, but took a decidedly campy tone with the villains, which undermined any threat they may have had, and then the series alienated even the romance fans by cheating on the marriage. Lois and Clark isn't a bad show, though, and whilst I don't recommend watching every episode, picking and choosing a selection of the best may allow a viewer to appreciate the show better. Before we go into the email section of today's show, here's a song I found on YouTube uh, all about Lois Lane. I'd never heard this before, but I quite like it. It's jingly and jangly and a, a bit indie rocky, so that's right down my street. Lois? She's bossy. She's stuck up, she's rude. Domineering, uncompromising, thick-headed, brilliant. She's really cool, mercurial. I feel weak when she speaks, invisible. She's so beautiful, I'm such a fool for So beautiful I'd see the world for you If you'd be my lowest man I'd be a superman Superman, if you only call my name, I'd be 
Okay, back. Uh, we'll do a couple of emails, I think, while we've uh, we've got some time. May as well uh, have a look what's in the email sack. Yeah. Our first email was from Trey Hooks, who uh, uh, has emailed me about series missing their leads. Uh, he talks about uh, listening to the latest Palace episode, uh, where I made a call for series missing their lead actors, and Trey mentions Doctor Who. He said there was a number of episodes early on in the first ten years or so were the Doctor was present in the overall story, but missing from individual episodes. The producers have to be given points for being clever. The, disempoint, the disembodied voice for the Invisible Doctor in Celestial Toymaker, the body double for the Doctor Android in The Chase, and the mixed-up face for Jamie in The Mind Robber. The closest I could come was Turn Left, which is a brilliant examination of how everything would have gone wrong if Donna Noble wasn't there for the Doctor and the Runaway Bride, but I think Tennant still showed up for about five minutes to blast the creature on her back. I'll keep noodling on it. Well, you keep noodling on it, Trey, because that one's on hold at the minute. Because I came up with um, an A-Team episode, which barely featured Mr. T, and Netflix had gone and bloody turned the A-Team off. So I can't include that one. But uh, I'm still noodling on that one. That, that, that seems like it would be an interesting idea for uh, for a show, certainly for this show. Thank you for emailing it. Tom Panarese emailed in, and uh, yet another great episode of Palace focusing on Star Wars. I was listening to you wonder why Darth Vader seems to have been demoted after Star Wars, according to the comic, even though he clearly wasn't in Empire. And if anything, the Death Star's destruction is all on Tarkin. I swear that the writers have been making the Vader gets demoted storyline because they saw this robot chicken sketch and thought that's what really happened. Granted, it's a funny sketch, but let's be real here. Uh, And here, just for your listening delight, lovely listener, is that robot chicken sketch. (laughs) <laughs> so I threw the Senate at him. <laughs> the whole Senate. True story. Oh my God, that is so funny. You made it come out of my nose. <laughs> Go for Papa Palpatine. You have a collect call from... Darth Vader. Ugh, I, I gotta take this. Hold on. Vader, how's my favorite Sith? Whoa, 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 whoa. Just slow down. Huh? What do you mean they blew up the Death Star? F- oh, f- f- who's they? What the hell is an aluminum falcon? Okay, okay. So, so who's left? Are you me? Well, where are you? Wait a sec. You've been flying around for two weeks trying to get a signal. Oh, you must smell like feet wrapped in leathery burnt bacon. Oh, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, I thought my Dark Lord of the Sith could protect a small thermal exhaust port that's only two meters wide. That thing wasn't even fully paid off yet. Do you have, do you have any idea what this is going to do to my credit? <laughs> oh, hang on, I got another call. What? I'm very busy right now. Oh, oh, well, well, where are they going? Huh, all right, um, just get me a turkey club. Uh, coleslaw, I guess. I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to eat it. What, what, what are you getting? Yeah, see, I, I always order the wrong thing. No, 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 I'll just stick with that. Okay, bye. Wait, what? Oh, uh, Cherry Coke. Thanks. Sorry about that. What? Oh, oh, just rebuild it? Oh, that a real, real f***ing original. And who's gonna give me a loan, jackhole? You? You get an ATM on that torso light bright? Now get your seven-foot-two asthmatic ass back here, or I'm gonna tell everyone what a whiny bitch you were about Potamame or Panda Bear or whatever the hell her name is. Oh, jeez, he's crying. <laughs> hey, 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 come on, come on, don't do that. Just, just, uh, look, I, you know, I'm just dealing with a lot of crap right now. Death Star blown up by a bunch of f***ing teenagers, you know, I didn't mean to snap. 
Okay, uh, ju just get back here. Okay, okay, bye. I, yeah, I, I love you too. Yeah, it's a shame when parody becomes uh, becomes canon, isn't it? Thank you for emailing in, Tom. Uh, if, if you are so inclined, you should check out Tom's show, Pop Culture Affidavit, which is very like this one. We need to get together more and, and talk some genre stuff. Michael Peacock has emailed in spectacular sci-fi themes. I like what he did with spectacular there. Greetings, Andrew. This is my first letter to the Palace of Glittering Delights. Oh, well, welcome aboard. Glad you could join us. Pull up a chair. Let's sit and chat. Number one, sci-fi show themes. I still stand by my feeling that Buck Rogers' theme, as dated as it is, is a surefire excitement builder. It's a shame that the scores are rather pricey in the States. I also tip my hat to you for playing the entire Incredible Hulk piano piece. I've been watching occasional episodes of the show on Netflix and have rediscovered my joy in it, but nearly every episode I've watched had the piano theme end on some weird tonal switch. The only bones I have to pick with your choices are the two current Doctor Who pieces for selection. I've heard the Matt Smith intro piece used for a few podcast themes in the past, and it's only been meh to me, more than an epic call to action. Plus, call a 36-year-old an old-timer, but personally, the traditional Doctor Who themes excellence reached its zenith with the Tom Baker years. As always, these are merely my two pennies, so spend them how you will. Um, I love the Butt Rogers theme. I make no apologies for it. I agree with you. I especially like... That bit's really quite exciting, and Stu Phillips did a good job with it, so no disagreement there. With the Doctor Who stuff, I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree. I love I Am the Doctor. I do agree that as the show went on in the Matt Smith years, uh, they would rearrange it slightly. Murray Gold would rearrange it more and give it some more oomph in certain places. But its pick in that show was more a celebration of all of the music for the 11th hour, which, as I said in the show, I think is one of the best scores for any individual episode ever. With regards to the theme... I, just, I like the violin bits. I like da 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 and it's it's little bits like that that can often make a theme for me. So that's why I picked that one. But you know, as we will learn in an email later on, it isn't a zero-sum game. You can like what you like, I can like what I like, and we can still be friends. Uh, Michael's email continues to spectacular Spider-Man. I found the story of your daughter's mispronouncing of the show title to be very charming. Well, if you think that's funny, she still calls Peter Capaldi Peter Picaldi. And she's 12. But she still can't get that right. But anyway. Michael continues, I think I only ever caught one episode of the show proper, and that was when I was visiting friends in Chicago. They were fans of the show, and I didn't object. And I didn't object much to what I saw, but I rarely sleep well when I visit them. So unless the show was either excellence personified or horrendously terrible, and I just couldn't turn away, my attention span tends to be fuzzy. You mentioned the two 80s Spider-Man cartoons. I vividly recall and his amazing friends, because whilst the show wasn't excellent as a child, it was my gateway to the Marvel Universe proper. That show may have been my first exposure to such characters as Captain America, the X-Men, Namor, Magneto, Juggernaut, and even a truly ridiculous-looking Black Knight. Search for pictures if you want evidence. But I remember the solo series featuring at least two episodes with Doctor Doom as the villain. Wasn't Seven Little Superheroes one? Because I really do like Seven Little Superheroes. Audio samples of those episodes were actually used on certain tracks of the hip-hop artist MF Doom's album, Hmm, Food. The album also contained samples from the 60s Fantastic Four cartoon detailing Victor Von Doom's origins, so maybe Professor Allen made a trip back to the 80s and convinced Sumbo Productions that for Spider-Man to be a viable cartoon option, there needed to be as much Doctor Doom as possible. Honestly, your solo show with occasional guest stars is a great listening experience. I've enjoyed your dipping your toes into various genre topics. As long as the doors to the palace are open, I'll continue visiting. Thank you for all your recording endeavours, Andrew, and I look forward to talking more soon, Michael Peacock. Well, you're always welcome, Michael. 
join in any time. Glad you like the show. The problem with solo podcasting is you've not got any other to bounce off, so you don't know if it's working until people feedback to you. I admit this could have fell flat on its face. And it could still be doing, for all I know. I don't know. I just I only go off what you say, and if you say you're enjoying it, that's good enough for me. Oh, Michael's got a PS. Did, since you did conclude your sci-fi themes with the opening music of Wonder Woman, what are the chances you might cover the Linda Carter Wonder Woman series in extended conversation? Um, very possible. Uh, I was listening to Chris and Cindy Franklin, and they did an episode on Supermates about Wonder Woman with a guest star. And I'm terribly sorry, I'm blanking on who the guest star was. Uh, I do apologise. It may have been Kyle Benny, but if it wasn't, I apologise. And um, I, I said on the Facebook page, Horror Channel over here has been rerunning Wonder Woman recently. I don't know why it's on the Horror Channel, of all places. And I've caught a number of episodes, and I'm surprised by how much fun it is. It makes no sense. And Chris and Cindy were absolutely right in their criticism that, it, you know, it's cookie-cutter in that it could be Charlie's Angels, or it could be Bionic Woman, or whatever. But it, it's don't underestimate fun. And the show is just a lot of fun, so I, I really do want to cover some some Linda Carter Wonder Woman, probably the pilot, I would imagine, because I like the the World War Two episodes more than I like the seventies set ones. That Ira computer just irritates me. So a very real possibility that Wonder Woman may happen. Uh, Jack Bond has emailed in. Just a quick note on your irresponsibility in playing the Wonder Woman theme song following off what Michael just said. Don't you know some people listen to your podcast on the way to work? I had that running through my head for the rest of the day. And once I had to stop myself from singing it. Partly my own fault, but I should have expected something like that from you. <laughs> sorry, Jack. Actually, no, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry at all. <laughs> Uh, thanks for the info on the Stringfellow cello piece. I did not know that till next time, Jack. Well, you're very welcome. And I hope I embarrassed you thoroughly singing that Wonder Woman thing. It is an earworm, isn't it? That Wonder Woman thing. Uh, Chris Franklin has emailed in in the first of a trilogy of emails I got about the Buffy show that I did last time. Uh, hello, Andy. Hello, Christopher. Behind are my usual missives to the palace, so I'll catch up on your recent Star Wars and Buffy episodes, which I greatly enjoyed. Star Wars comics have always been a bit of a blind spot to me. These sound intriguing, particularly the Vader comic, so I may have to check out a trade or two when they make their inevitable sojourn to our local library, where my wife just happens to work. Thanks for the recommendations. Well, you're very welcome. Kanan, I have here in my hand, actually. No word of a lie. Listen, real comic, not digital. I have uh, Darth Vader issue 8, Lando issue 2, and Kanan the Last Padawan issue 5. And all of them have continued to be solidly entertaining. Kanan issue 5 was brilliant. Brilliant conclusion to the first story arc. And you don't even have to watch Rebels, honestly. You do not have to watch Rebels to read the the first five issues of Kanan at all. I don't know how that's going to pan out as the series continues, whether it's going to weave in between Rebels story arcs or whatever but for the first five issues it could be set in the Clone Wars it could, it's, it's a post episode three story it doesn't really matter if you don't know who Kanan is um, I've been very impressed with it Greg Wiseman who wrote the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon uh, has done a great job with it and it's, it's been very good I may do another follow up on that but I'm currently reading the Han Solo novels so there is another Star Wars episode down the pike Chris continues, I was a bit behind on Buffy as well. Initially, we didn't have access to the WB, so we began watching Buffy when TNT began to air the first few seasons. Whilst the later seasons were still in production, I know you've said elsewhere that you prefer the high school years, and I agree completely. I also prefer the Monster of the Week episodes both here and on X-Files. To sound like a broken record, we agree that both shows became mired in their own continuity at some point. I don't think Buffy suffered as much as X-Files, but I still like the one-and-done stories. Oddly enough, I feel the opposite about Smallville, but then I have always had a vested interest in that mythology, practically from the womb. Yeah, I, I, I gotta admit, I got bored of X Files around season five, six ish, seven ish. I watched the odd episode here and there, 
after David Duchovny left, I think I only saw two or three episodes in the last one. And the last one was so disappointing that it kind of coloured me on the rest of the series. And that second film that they did, that wasn't very good either. So, I've got to admit, I'm, I'm not really that excited about this new mini-series they're doing. I think there's any number of shows I'd rather bring back before The X-Files. In fact, that may make a good episode of Palace. Top ten TV shows I would bring back. Eh... I'll, I'll ponder on that one. Thank you. Chris concludes, looking forward to whatever topic you plan to tackle next. The amount of time and research you put into each show is very apparent, and I appreciate the work you do. It's obviously just not a case of you plopping in front of a recording device and rambling on. Although I'd probably listen to that too, Chris. Well, thank you, Chris. No, I, put, I do put a, a bit of effort into it. I was a bit concerned about the Buffy one. Largely because I listened back to it, and I, don't, I didn't think the musical interlude bits worked. It was too top-heavy because there was more music in the first half of the show than there was in the second half. And I should have spaced that out a bit. And, you know, you learn you learn by your mistakes, don't you? So if I did it again, I'd, I'd pace it out a bit more. It was also playing around with the idea of the new soundtrack episodes that I've just been doing, blending the music in with the talking. And I, I, don't, ter- I don't think I pulled it off in the Buffy one. I wasn't as happy with that one as I have been with other episodes. I couldn't be bothered going back re-editing it because I'm a, a lazy bugger by and large. But... Uh, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it anyway. So, uh, somebody who didn't enjoy it, well, he enjoyed the episode, but he doesn't enjoy Buffy, is the mighty Luke Giaconetti. And uh, I love Luke. Listen, this is a great email. Ah, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. When I started dating my now wife in college, one of the shows she was devoted to was Buffy, along with Angel, Charmed, her favourite show of all time, and several other genre shows which I had no interest in beforehand. And of all of them, Buffy remains the be-all, end-all, overrated, ear-grating, head-splitting, nausea-inducing, nonsense, bullshit show of them all! Sweet Christmas sitting through this show was an out-and-out chore every week. The dialogue made me want to drive an ice pick in my ear. The direction was nearly always terrible, especially the awful action sequences and so on and so forth. But then I saw the post about this episode, and you were doing a rewatch of the first season, and see how it shakes out. And it seems the show has aged fairly well and remains much as entertaining to you as it was back in the day. Which is to say, after hearing your praise for various elements of the series, I can safely check off the box which reads, No need to rewatch this show. Everything which pleases you about it and the same things which turn me off. The dialogue you call whip-smart is to me trite and trying too hard. You praise Whedon's writing and over on control of the series, but all I get is high-concept fanfic, which rips off ideas from various sources ranging from any network police procedural to Lucio Fulci's Gates of Hell films. But wait! Don't bail on the email yet. Well, I'm not going to. But before we carry on, a couple of things, though. I like Whedon doing it. I think when Whedon does that dialogue, it works. I don't like it and actually agree with you that it grates when other people try to imitate how Whedon does dialogue. The first season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was terrible for that. Like, the writers of that show desperately wanted you to think Joss Whedon was writing this because it was a a girl, mutant enemy production. And nobody can do it like him. I think Whedon pulls it off. I don't think anyone else can pull it off. And I think that's, that's the dis. So I agree with you. When other people do it, it's awful. When Whedon does it, I buy it and I buy into it. And because he actually talks like that, if you've ever listened to him being interviewed, he, he, does talk, he does mangle language in a very creative way. But Anyway, Luke continues. Here's the kicker. I love the fact that you were so obviously enthusiastic about the series and had so much pleasure in re-watching it. Loved it! Because I've said many times before, and hash it knows, I will say it again, genre fiction is not a zero-sum game. You and I can have wildly different appearance about a show such as Buffy, and guess what? doesn't matter. 
We can agree to disagree and move on to talk about something else. We don't all have to like the same stuff. So whilst your review of season one of Buffy did absolutely nothing to change my opinion of the show, I greatly appreciated hearing you talk about it and why it works for you. So stay the course and hold the line, my friend. Stiff up a lip and all that, right? Keep him up, dude. Luke, Jackinetti, Simpsonville, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, hater. <laughs> uh, thanks, Luke. I genuinely loved that email. It genuinely made me laugh while I was reading it. And I emailed Luke back with just, just saying, haters gonna hate. <laughs> I loved it. Thank you, Luke. And I do appreciate that you still like the episode, even though I was banging on about something that you had... Uh, had no particular interest in. So I do appreciate you emailing in. That did give me um, give me a chuckle. On the other side of the coin, though, Keith Mason's emailed in. I just wanted to say how much I've enjoyed your recent Palace of Glittering Delights. The episode on Spectacular Spider-Man has made me want to watch a couple of episodes. And I did, with my son, who loved it. Your theme tune episode is one of the better ones out there, proving that mediocrity is in the execution, not concept. I also loved your look at Western episodes of non-Western shows, which was a lot of fun. Your recent, which I finished listening 45 minutes ago, episode on the first season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer really got to me, though. I was one of those, season one wasn't too good, people, but your review made me revisit the episodes in my head, and I realised that it was actually very good. It just got loads better as it went along. Everything the show needs to have was there in the first dozen episodes, and it built on it, taking it to new heights. I may rewatch it again soon based on this episode. A question is, do you have any further of this type of give-it-another-look episodes in mind? They're insightful and entertaining. I'm unsure this is not a unique opinion. Um, I haven't thought about it, Keith, to be honest with you. It's certainly an intriguing idea, though. I don't know where I'd go next. I haven't seen a lot of people... See, the, the, the thing with that is it normally has to be inspired by something. So I would have to see somebody write an article as to why Space Above and Beyond was the worst television show ever made for me to then actually go, actually, it wasn't. Because I loved Space Above and Beyond, and I still want to do an episode on it. And I still want to do an episode on Blake 7, but these aren't shows that people have ever turned around and said they're awful. So, I mean, if you come up with any ideas, feel free to send them my way. Certainly with this show, I'm open to suggestions. Till the next show drops, I'll simply have to listen to some other podcasts, like the Fantastic Cast, Hey Kids Comics, The Entertainer Listen to the Prophets, Garden, Bennett, Andy, you get about. Ta-ta for now, Keith Monkey Mason, living in Liverpool, so you don't have to. A couple of things there. Thank you, first of all, Keith, for emailing in. Second, I was in Liverpool last week, last week but one. I went to the Liverpool Comic Mart and I picked up all of Dan Jurgens' Thor run in the 50p bin for 30 quid. Bargain, because the guy gave me a discount, because I, I only had £30 on me. And uh, he actually said, oh, go on, you can have them. So he clearly just wanted rid of them. And that's every single issue of Dan Jurgens' run, including the annuals. So I was in Liverpool. So you may be living there, so I don't have to. But I went there anyway. Secondly, Keith does um, a Reading Comics in the 90s blog. He posts it on Facebook. It's really good, really interesting. He picks some very good comics. And if uh, if you're not reading it, you should be. Because it's a lot of fun. Uh, thank you to everyone who emailed in. Especially Luke's email, which really did give me a laugh. Uh, next time on the Palace of Glittering Delights, again, I've got no idea. I'm currently halfway through Rebel Dawn which is the, star, the third of Anne Crispin's Star Wars Han Solo novels, but I also want to reread Brian Daly's novels to give us a Han Solo episode. So I'm currently in the process of doing that. Uh, thoughts that are percolating. I want to do shows that, that, miss their guests, that miss their lead actors. That sounds like an interesting idea. I've got my film themes picked out for the film themes episode, so another soundtrack episode's coming up, so I need to record that sometime soon. I really want to do an episode about the Incredible Hulk episode, The Snow, which is a brilliant episode. Um, that I want to cover and then as soon as Hey Kids Comics finishes 
because that's taking up a lot of my time at the minute. Don't want to drop the ball on that at the last minute. As soon as that finishes, I'm going to roll my sleeves up and do every single issue of Lee Dick or Spider-Man. That'll probably be a multi-part epic. What I consider the Bible of, uh, of Marvel Comics. So that's what's percolating. As always with this show, if an idea comes to mind that jumps ahead of all of that, that'll be next. So, uh, got to keep it interesting for me. One of the things I've learned about Hey Kids is that you've got to keep things interesting and being able to talk about anything you want to talk about keeps it interesting. So, that's what that's the impetus behind this show. You never know what you're going to get. And I only hope that I continue to talk about stuff that people will find interesting. Okay. Um, thank you very much for listening. I mean... If you have, if you haven't, you haven't heard me say that. And uh, a couple of things before we go. HeyKidsComics.VirginMedia.com is still the email address if you want to get in touch with me. And uh, if you pop by the 223freaks.com webpage, why don't you click on the Amazon link and it'll take you to Amazon. And when you buy stuff, we get a cut. And it doesn't cost you anything extra, but it does allow us to keep the lights on. So uh, that's always nice if you can do that for us. Uh, thanks very much. And while you're there, check out some of the other shows, some of the other great shows that are on the network, including Listen to the Prophets. First Night Podcast, which I do with Sean Angle and Paul Spitara, uh, which is a lot of fun. I have a great, great deal of fun doing that. Um, right, uh, thank you very much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Bye bye.